In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I'm Angela Serser, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I'm Bob Drew, former FBI agent and profiler. And I'm Susan Kostler Drew, former FBI agent and profiler. Today we're discussing an unsolved homicide, and this is being investigated by the San Francisco Police Department. And unlike Jane Gilboy's murder, which we covered on a previous episode, this case is not that old, only going back to 2010. One thing I'd like to point out is that when we cover unsolved cases, we can't always share everything. But what we can say is that the investigating agencies have covered all the logical leads. With this case in particular, and you'll understand why after we go over it, all the police department needs is a name. The victim in this case is Philip DiMartino, and he was found murdered in his apartment on Monday, August 2, 2010. When he didn't show up for work or answer his phone, Philip's supervisor went to his apartment to check on him around 1 p.m. The supervisor looked through the window blinds and saw Philip face down on the floor. He called 911 and the San Francisco Fire Department responded. After gaining entry into the apartment, they found him on the floor with multiple stab wounds. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Philip was last seen alive on Friday, July 30th, 2010, at a local bar called Badlands, located in the Castro District of San Francisco. Philip was a regular customer at Badlands, and witnesses thought they saw him there between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. However, no one saw him leave with anyone. At approximately 9.45 p.m., Philip's neighbor heard a high-pitched male voice yell, No! and Stop! several times. Philip's residence was formerly a single-family dwelling that was converted into 10 separate apartments. He resided in apartment number one, which was a small one-bedroom apartment located two flights up from street level. Apartment number two was located next to number one, and there was an apartment under number one and number two, which was one flight up from street level. The remaining apartments were located toward the back of the building and could not be viewed from the street. From the front porch, the entrance into Philip's apartment led into a small living room. From the living room, there was a doorway leading into the bedroom. The bedroom was located between the living room and a small kitchen and bathroom, which were at the far end of the apartment from the front door. Basically, if you were standing on the front porch, you could see directly into the bedroom, which was why Philip's supervisor was able to see him through the window. Philip was face down on the bedroom floor. 
He had numerous stab wounds to his back and neck area, as well as to his abdomen. There was blood in the bedroom, including on the bed sheets, drops of blood in the living room, and a significant amount of blood in the bathroom. There was no evidence of forced entry and no signs of ransacking. Valuable items, such as credit cards and Philip's laptop and phone, were located in the apartment. In separate locations in the living room, there were notes written in Spanish. I'm not going to read the notes because the police haven't released those details, but we'll be discussing them as possible staging. Philip died of 48 stab wounds, the majority being to his back. He also suffered stab wounds to his neck and shoulder area, abdomen, and buttocks. He had a defensive wound to his left hand and possible defensive wounds to his knees. Philip was stabbed with such force that he suffered several rib fractures. Now let's talk about victimology, Philip's personality traits, his characteristics, his lifestyle, his habits. Angela, do you want to cover victimology? Absolutely. So Philip was a 36-year-old white gay male, originally from Illinois. He'd been living in his apartment for approximately three years. He was a senior marketing manager at Archstone, a large real estate and property management company in San Francisco. He was considered an excellent employee and was well-liked by his co-workers. On the day his body was found, which was three days after he was last seen, Philip had missed an important meeting at work and didn't answer his phone. This was very unusual for him, as Julia mentioned before, so his supervisor went to his apartment. Philip lived in the San Francisco neighborhood known as the Western Edition, which is an urban, mostly residential neighborhood. Residences there are apartment buildings, single-family homes, converted single-family homes, condominiums, and housing projects. The Western addition is diverse, with residents of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, sexual orientations, and economic statuses. Philip frequented gay bars in the Castro District, a predominantly gay neighborhood with bars, restaurants, shops, and other businesses within walking distance of his apartment. He owned a vehicle, but was known to walk or take taxis to and from the local bars. One of Philip's favorite bars was Badlands, and he frequented that bar's happy hour. People who knew him said he usually became intoxicated when he drank and could become unruly and rude. Philip wasn't in a long-term relationship and preferred to be single. When he went out, he often brought someone home. He preferred younger, slender, smaller Hispanic or Asian men. And he also used social networking websites to meet people. He preferred to have people come to his apartment so he would provide his address via the internet. Philip never reported to friends, family, coworkers, or police that he'd been, was being harassed. However, about a month before the murder, Philip woke up and his wallet and computer were missing. The items had been taken by an individual whom he'd had over for an evening. So what we know about Philip's life, he was very well liked at work. He was very responsible. So responsible, in fact, when he didn't show up that day, his supervisor knew something was wrong, went to his apartment and found him. It seems the area of Philip's life that may possibly have enhanced his risk level was his social life. Predictability in personal habits lends itself to increasing someone's safety. He led a very predictable, 
and positive professional life. He was at the executive level in his line of work. He kept fairly regular hours and people noticed any variation in those hours, which is how his supervisor came to realize that he needed to be checked upon. When he wasn't working, however, while he still engaged in fairly regular habits, for instance, frequenting the same bar or bars, socializing with a lot of the same people, one area where his life was less predictable, and markedly so, was in the area of his sexual liaison. In that case, he preferred to be single. He showed no interest in wanting a serious and or long-term pairing with a romantic partner, but rather enjoyed the freedom, basically hooking up with other men, either that he'd meet at some of the bars that he frequented or in any of his life activities. He also used social media to find potential partners. Yes. You know, even prior to, to actually encountering someone in person is the information that you have to provide in order to participate in that website or that type of activity. You have to provide certain personal information. That is inherently something that would increase your risk. Really, anyone who invites anyone they're not familiar with into their home is placing themselves at an elevated risk. This was Philip's habit, and it was one that increased his risk in an otherwise very orderly and predictable life, this was the one factor that exposed him to risk elevation. He had already experienced a higher level of risk as he had already been victimized. I think we agree Philip would be considered at high risk for becoming a victim of violent crime. However, his risk was not elevated by living in a high crime area, involvement in any kind of criminal activity, or involvement in a known violent domestic relationship. Rather, his risk was elevated due to his interactions with strangers or individuals he didn't know that well, and those interactions possibly being fueled by alcohol. As anyone can attest to, when someone is intoxicated, their ability to discern the character of people is diminished. And so he may well have left with people that he normally, if he were sober, would not have considered. But when intoxicated, he may well have had lowered defenses and lower ability to assess the suitability of an individual. And therefore, that further elevates his risk. Based on his victimology and what we know about his movements that night, witnesses seeing him at Badlands, and the lack of evidence indicating forced entry into his apartment, I think we can say Philip was most likely killed by someone he invited into his home that night. Yes, well, one of the things that was assessed by the folks who looked at the crime scene, by the, by the investigators looking at the crime scene, was that there were no signs of forced entry into Mr. DiMarcino's residence. The logical presumption would be then that the offender was someone who Mr. DiMartino voluntarily allowed into his residence. Therefore, he may not have known them well, but this was not someone who burglarized his place with the intent of committing theft, for instance and then was uh, interrupted by Mr. DiMartino. 
And this offender was allowed in to the apartment by Mr. DiMartino. And if the offender just wanted to steal something, we already know there was an incident in which Philip had fallen asleep and items were taken without him even waking up. And there's no evidence that anything of value had been taken anyway. One of the other factors to consider is the fact that it appeared, based on the wounds that he received, the subject had gone directly to the use of deadly force. Based on what the medical examiner noted, there weren't any blunt force trauma inflicted on DiMartino. There was no sign of controlling or attempting to control DiMartino, such as ligature marks on his body. Instead, it appeared as if the subject went directly to deadly force. And it appeared, because of the amount of blood on the bed, the attack likely started on the bed, or very close to it. And it appeared when the attack began, they were facing one another due to the defensive wound on Philip's hand. Then Philip fell to the floor, pulled his knees up to protect himself, which was why he had cuts to his knees. Then Philip rolled over and the offender continued to strike him over and over again in the back. There were no signs of escalation, no evidence to indicate the attack happened in any other room other than in the bedroom. And like you said, Angela, the offender went directly to deadly force. It's interesting to note that a neighbor heard a high-pitched male voice yell no and stop several times at about 9.45 that night. The interesting part to me is that there was no witnessing of prior yelling noise of any note that this witness heard, which would be likely if this were something where there was an argument that culminated in violence. The other thing that weighs against that, he did have defensive marks on his knees and one on his hands, but he did not have defensive wounds that would indicate that there was a prolonged attempt to defend himself prior to laying down and curling up in a defensive position. This indicates to me, or just further indicates to me, that this sudden murderous attack was a surprise. This was not something that he could in any way have anticipated as being the possible outcome of this interaction. He was close to the offender. He was facing the offender. And this was a very quick and murderous attack, not an argument culminated in violence and not something that went from a physical struggle into a a murderous attack. He didn't even have a chance to defend himself, and he likely would have been able to defend himself had he seen this coming, at least defend himself more aggressively than he was able to. He was young. He was physically fit. Even if this offender were physically stronger than him, it would still be expected. If he had any way of anticipating this, there would be more indications of his attempts to defend himself or deflect the stabbing and incision that that the offender was inflicting upon him. But you don't see that. His level of intoxication may also have influenced his reactions to any perceived threat, no matter how quickly it came at him, and also influence how well he'd be able to respond to that type of a surprise attack. Also, We know that prior to Mr. DiMartino's interaction with this offender, he had been texting friends that evening. 
His last text was at 9.29 p.m. So that's approximately 16 minutes prior to Mr. DiMartino's neighbor hearing the high-pitched male voice yelling no and stop. Whether Mr. DiMartino was already in the company of this offender or maybe was just about to come into contact with this offender, the fact is that's a small time period. If we go off the timeline you've just presented, Bob, that's not very long for something to go really wrong. And even if the information from the neighbor is not accurate, maybe they're off on the time, maybe it wasn't the victim they heard scream, the injuries alone tell us the attack happened very quickly and unexpectedly. Let's talk about the injuries, the wounds. Yes, and the large number of wounds. As we've previously said before, we know that what was likely a defensive wound to one of his hands and possibly to the knees, but that the majority of them were on the trunk of his body. And although there were some in the abdomen area, that most were on his back. So assumingly after Mr. Martino was on the floor, what we learned from the medical examiner's report were quite forceful. And some of these wounds were so forceful as to actually break bones, break his ribs. Clearly, 40 plus wounds is gratuitous and well beyond the number that would have been necessary unless they were all very shallow wounds, which clearly they weren't. It's also important to note what these wounds weren't, which were they weren't post-mortem wounds, which we do see in some crime scenes where there is mutilation or continued cuts to the body after a person has already expired. So the number of wounds here can tell us some things potentially about the offender, or in some cases, it can tell us about the relationship between the offender and the victim. In other cases, it may tell us more about the motivation of the offender as far as the number of wounds that are inflicted. And when you say these wounds were gratuitous, you're pointing out that it was way beyond the amount necessary to cause his death. The offender just kept going. It wasn't necessarily for any sexual gratification. It was out of emotion, anger, revenge. Perhaps they felt offended, insulted, slighted in some way. But when you talk about the gratuitousness of these wounds, you're talking about the number of wounds. As well as the force, the amount of force used that actually caused breaking of bones. Also lends itself, yes, Angela, much more to some type of emotional response, whether that be a personal emotional response or a vengeful emotional response. That is usually the case. There are some cases where it could be motivated by something else. And if I can just sidetrack here, the only one I'm thinking of is like Sharon Tate, where 40 plus wounds, strangulation, all sorts of stuff, and absolutely no prior contact with the victim. And yet there was all this stuff done to her body. They were all following Manson, but they were also clearly to get that wrapped up in him had their own mental health issues. I mean, that could possibly be the other thing here is that someone who is acting emotionally because of a mental instability. Maybe that's the way to put it. If we term gratuitous violence as unnecessary, overkill, etc., then the caveat 
to saying it was fueled by emotion is to say that the subject may have been mentally ill, may have been psychologically ill, and or may have been under the influence of drugs that would prompt exaggerated violence. All great points, because going back to Philip's victimology, he wasn't in a serious emotional relationship with anyone, at least not from his perspective. Right. It could be related to mental health issues and not necessarily a strong emotional connection because they've been seeing each other or been in each other's company many times and they have a strong emotional attachment. Even amongst, quote, normal people in relationships with other people. There is commonly a different level of investment in that relationship between the partners. One partner is serious or wants to become more serious. The other partner is non-serious and does not want it to be. This doesn't have to even be a situation, you know, where one is mentally ill. It only needs to be that the expectations of these two individuals are very different and feelings get hurt under those circumstances and can prompt extreme reactions. And then you throw the influence of alcohol or drugs into the mix and could be the equivalent of throwing fuel on a fire. So in a case where this was not a one-time or a first-time encounter, it could be a situation if, if this person were someone with whom he had repeated liaisons, that individual potentially could have taken this more seriously than Mr. DiMartino. And Mr. DiMartino's rebuffing of that idea or of overtures to that effect could result in the offender interpreting that as hurtful rejection and then responding. This is all speculation, but these are all possibilities. And when we go through this process, as you know, Julia, and as we all know, when we go through the process of consulting, we have to consider all possibilities that existed in the relationship that resulted in a murder. But what we do know is that we have an individual who, in a very short period of time, will escalate directly to deadly force. We don't know exactly why in this case, but this is something we would expect to see in his other interactions outside this crime. Not resulting in murder, but overreacting to perceived slights, overreacting to situations where people would be surprised by his interactions and his responses. This is a characteristic of this offender. Another interesting aspect of this case are the notes that were left at the scene. As I said at the beginning of the show, we aren't going to read them verbatim, and that's only because the police haven't released their contents, but we will discuss the themes that we see in these notes. Now, they were fairly short notes left in two different locations in the apartment, and some of them were written as if the victim had written them from the victim's perspective. But we know they were written after the murder because there was blood on some of them. And notably, the notes were written in Spanish. This indicates a couple of possibilities. And one is that this offender, when under stress, reverts to his first language or his primary language. And in this case, that would be Spanish. 
The other possibility is that this offender may have very limited abilities when it comes to the English language. These notes were placed there to create an impression. And the impression seems to be Mr. DiMartino had written them. Yet they were in Spanish. If you were to try to create an impression as best you could to have these notes be interpreted as coming from Mr. DiMartino, it doesn't make sense that they're in Spanish even if he had Spanish abilities as a second language. On the other hand, if this offender had uh, real limitations when it came to his ability to write English and perhaps even speak English, it makes a lot more sense. Then the choice comes down to, do I want to leave notes that they might believe are coming from Mr. DiMartino, or do I just not want to leave any notes at all? These notes were something that this offender deemed as advantageous in that they created an impression he wanted to make with the investigators. So this is an indication of the offender trying to do some type of staging in order to influence the investigators that had to know would inevitably be arriving at the scene at some point. But it doesn't seem very sophisticated. The way in which these notes were constructed was erratic in that they were in several different locations in the apartment. They were scattered throughout the apartment and actually had been written on different paper. And they weren't necessarily in any type of order when they were found. So this lack of sophistication, the erratic way in which they appear to have been constructed is possibly indicative of, again, the emotional level of the offender. This is someone who has just exerted a lot of emotion and strength in the killing of a human being. And so is possibly still very upset, possibly panicking possibly trying to calm down or settle himself or begin to try and think of what do I do now and how am I going to get myself out of this and how am I going to get out of this apartment undetected? The writing of the notes is one of the plans that he apparently comes up with. I will say this, in all the cases I've ever worked the writing of these notes was one of the most interesting and challenging things to interpret, understanding their purpose. It certainly wasn't to cover up a crime or make it appear to be something it wasn't. The body was there. There was plenty of evidence. Again, this is one of those things where it actually contributes to possibly to his identification because touching these different items, leaving these different things in the apartment all give investigators potential avenues to pursue for identification. Again, we're not mental health professionals or forensic psychiatrists, but there's a chance that could be contributed to some kind of mental health issue as erratic as it was written. And again, we can't go into details, but there were certain aspects of it, starting off written from one person's perspective, the victim, but then changing and making it seem as if it's coming from the offender's perspective. One thing to think about is that that could be a possibility. The other thing about the notes is that they were written on paper from within the apartment and with pens, pen or pens from within the apartment. 
even if someone argues that the murder was planned prior to the offender coming to the apartment, these notes were not likely to have been part of that plan. Or they could have been written at a time of tranquility for the offender and just brought to the apartment. And instead, they were probably hastily written after the offender had killed Mr. DiMartino. They definitely appeared to me to be hastily written, and I think indicative that this murder wasn't pre-planned. He's just stabbed someone 48 times. And like Susan said, he's thinking, what the heck of a devil do I do now? We've been talking about mental illness or high levels of intoxication, etc., Engaging in staging is actually, as opposed to an an emotional activity at the crime scene, is much more of a a rational one. Even if it's very limited in sophistication, etc., it's a rational thought on the part of the offender that I need to add something to this crime scene to obscure my identity, to distance myself. Someone who is completely anonymous and would not think it was likely that they would be considered a suspect in this case. It's a very unusual thing for someone like that to take the time to extend their time at a crime scene, to extend their contact with that crime scene, to write notes or engage in any other kind of staging. And whether or not that person would have been expected at that apartment is a separate story. But the fact that offender thought they could be identified as someone who was at that apartment lends itself to interpreting this is not the first time this offender has been there. This offender feels that possibly that his connection with Mr. DiMartino is known by other people. We've talked about the emotion involved and potential mental health issues, but I want to reiterate what Bob said, that we do see rational thought. The offender knows he did something wrong, and he took steps to cover that up. As unsophisticated as those steps may seem, this is not someone who doesn't know right from wrong. He knew it at the time, and he did it anyway. As another example of that, where I think you can have someone who suffers from mental illness and yet is aware of right from wrong, in other circumstances where you may have had someone who, in due to whatever circumstances, has harmed individuals or murdered individuals, and then make no steps to cover that up. Maybe immediately expose themselves to the police or they wander out into the public, blood covered or something like that. That's very different from the activities that we see here. This was not someone who was, say, suffering from some kind of a psychosis who was unaware of their actions and what they were doing. There's a big difference there between someone who's acting with great emotion, that type of thing, as opposed to someone who literally is unaware of their surroundings or what it is that they are doing. Like I said, even those that do suffer from mental illness can also be aware that what they are doing is against the law or is a wrong act, etc., and can then proceed to act very rationally after the event has occurred. You know, you just do a horrendous murder and you think the person can't be in there but look at Holmes and he went in and just slaughtered all those people in the movie theater and then very calmly walked outside put all his weapons down and put his hands up in the air 
when the police showed up because he knew if he walked out there, why didn't he, if he was out of it, why didn't he just go out in full commando gear and raise his gun up when the police show up? Right. He went and did what he did. He was very calculated in what he did and how he did it. And then he walked out the door and went out and put everything down to go, oh, nope, I give up. Look, hands in the air. He was clearly suffering from mental illness, but still very much aware that what he was doing was not right. That's another case I think we should eventually cover, the 2012 Aurora, Colorado shooting, because Susan and Angela were involved in that case when it occurred. A couple of other details we thought were indicative of rational thought, and this is speculation, but there was an overturned laundry hamper, so possibly the offender was looking for clothes to put on because he was covered in blood. There was also evidence the offender injured himself and may have tried to bandage his wound or wounds. With the amount of stabbing that occurred, blood would have likely moved into the handle area and caused his hand to slip, injuring himself on the blade. I think that's exactly what happened. And the offender understood he couldn't leave the apartment like that with a bleeding hand, and he took steps to stop the bleeding and bandage himself. These actions demonstrate a rational thought process and an attempt to cover up his involvement in the crime. You do not do this if you don't understand that what you did was wrong. If you have any information about the murder of Philip DiMartino, please contact the San Francisco Police Department Homicide Detail at 415-553-1145, 415-553-1145, or you can contact the anonymous tip line at 415-575-4444. That's 415-575-4444. Four 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 four, And don't worry about being wrong because they will be able to quickly rule out any innocent people. You can help solve this murder. All they need is a name. And that's it for this episode of The Consult. On the next episode, we'll continue our discussion about who we think the offender is. And I promise we'll try to get it done and get it out to you as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.